loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Annette Liebeskind Burkowitz. Annette was born in Kyrgyzstan and grew up in post-war Poland and the fledgling state of Israel before coming to the United States at age 16. Her professional backgrounds in the biological sciences and education, her stories and poems have appeared in Silk Road Review, A Literary Crossroads, Persimmon Tree, American Gothic, A New Chamber Opera, Blood and Thunder, Musings on the Art of Medicine, and The Healing Muse. Erythra Thalassa, Brain Disrupted, is her first poetry chapbook, a memoir in verse about her emotional response to her son's stroke. It's available on Amazon or, co- Amazon or can be requested through your local bookstore. And if you want to f- reach out to Annette or find out more about this book and her other books, you can go to Annette Berkovitz, B-E-R-K-O-V-I-T-S dot com. Welcome, Annette. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. It's a pleasure. And I, um, I really appreciated your uh, your book, you know, poetry for me, the poetry that speaks to me is um, full of feeling, but um, evoking feeling as opposed to telling me about it. And uh, I really could feel you in the book and what you've gone through with your son. Could you just start by telling us um, what what happened with him uh, and you know, what led to writing the book? Yes. Um, Six years ago, uh, exactly in November uh, 2014, uh, my son's stroke was uh, a bomb that shattered his life and ours to some extent as well. I got a call to run to the uh, emergency room uh, where my son was brought in um, barely conscious and he had had a hemorrhagic stroke, a brain bleed in other words. And uh, a nurse took me aside and I, I think she she was trying to be kind to lower my expectations because she, she told me that no more than 5% of people survived that kind of stroke. And he was taken into the operating theater. And of course, I had no idea whether he was going to come out. So that began this six-year saga. That, and that's, um, you know, the, I think of this often uh, when I'm talking to people who, for instance, um, lost people who had Alzheimer's or anything that brain, um, that affects the brain, the brain kind of contains our personality, our way of being identified as ourselves. And so, um, you know, I lived with someone for a long time who had cancer, but her brain was fine. And so our relationship didn't change 
that much. We just were facing challenges, right? <laughs> so I imagine immediately there's that loss of the person, even though he was, of course, still alive. Did you experience that? Well, uh, yes, in many ways. Uh, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, well, at first, my son was in a coma for a very, very long time. Uh, we had no idea if he would wake up uh, from the coma, and if he did, uh, how much uh, of the brain functioning uh, would remain. Uh, there were many hospitalizations and many uh, brain procedures. After uh, some of them, he fell into a coma again. So he had multiple comas and multiple uh, serious uh, brain events. Uh, but really this six-year ordeal taught me one thing, which is that the brain is an absolutely incredible organ hmm. and that we know so little about it. In many ways, I think the brain is a, like a planet that's yet to be explored. We see only maybe the outer rings of it uh, because um, my son's doctors uh, thought uh, after, after some time, they, they thought, well, he would eventually stand up and be able to walk and move, but uh, they were a little bit dubious about what was going to remain of his cognitive function. And yet now, six years later, the reverse is true. He cannot move a single muscle, can't move his head, his arms, his legs, nothing, nothing moves. Mm. But his brain, his personality is intact. And that's the miracle of it. He's still the Jeremy uh, we loved and used to know. He remembers everything. His, his long-term memory is absolutely astounding. He mm. will talk to me about something that happened 40 years ago that I had long forgotten. His short-term short memory uh, is variable. Uh, some of the things that he doesn't remember are probably because every one of his days is the same. You know, people tell yeah. me that during the pandemic, when they stay home, they sometimes barely know which day of the week it is. Sure. Well, if you imagine someone who is in bed uh, for six years, uh, doesn't go out much for a, a lot of uh, complicated reasons, he's home in bed. It's, it's hard to know what time it is or what you ate for lunch yesterday or what you ate for breakfast even this day. So in that area, uh, his short-term memory is not great, but his personality is the same. He still loves music the way he loved music. Mm. He's still a very concerned father. And, and basically, I understand my sense of how he manages to survive is that he lives for his two girls. Mm. And they are now what ages? They are 15 and soon to be 17. So they've grown up for a very substantial portion of their, their lives with disability. Uh, how would you say that's, uh, I mean, I can, having lived with someone who is disabled, I, I know something about what that looks like, and I was raising children at the time, but um, how do they process that from your view? What, how do they view it, you know? Uh, you, you know, they're teenagers now. Sometimes it's, it's a little difficult to puzzle out teenage behavior. 
<laughs> Indeed. But, uh, you know, they were, they, were, they were the ones who found Jeremy when he had the stroke. He had actually, he was uh, such an involved father that he stayed home from work that day to go to a parent-teacher conference. And the school was closed that day, so the girls were home. And he had gone into the shower to, to take a shower, and he locked the door because he didn't want the girls uh, to, to come in and bother him. And he collapsed in the shower. Mm-hmm. And after some period of time elapsed, we don't know how long, the girls noticed that daddy isn't around. So they started knocking on the bathroom door and calling and yelling, and all they heard is the water running. And of course, uh, you imagine uh, they were nine and 11, they, they were freaking out, they were frightened. They called Absolutely. their mother at work who was a, you know, uh, quite uh, far away. She was working in New Jersey at the time. And uh, an EMS was called and he had to be lifted out of the tub and they, they witnessed that. And for quite some time afterwards, especially the younger girl, she was even afraid to walk into the bathroom because uh, it was November when the EMS people stepped inside the tub, they left footprints in the tub. And that was such a terrifying image, seeing their father just hauled out of there. And and it's it's been hard on them. It's been hard on both of them. Uh, and it's it's hard for me to assess the long-term impact on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I know uh, the younger girl is uh, completely absorbed by dance and ballet. I think that's where she puts her emotions into. And the older girl is um, a very good student. So I don't know. I don't know what the long-term effect it is, but there's no doubt in my mind that they have been severely affected. I've noticed with my own kids that that goes in more than one direction. There's the tr- there there are the traumatic things, right? Which, uh, for instance, I'll I'll just speak about my older daughter. She's um, she's very germ phobic, even though my wife died of cancer. <laughs> you know, but I think that is connected. I think she's Absolutely. very very afraid of loss, right? But Absolutely. then on the other hand. She'll say her life has been immeasurably better because she learned very young that life is short. And so it sort of is a mixed picture, at least where she's concerned. She's she's going to be 40 tomorrow. So um, she's had a long, she was 14 when my wife died. So she's had a long time to kind of process it. But I'm, you know, that's, that's why I ask because I think um, there's, such a big effect and you don't know exactly which way it might it might go you know <laughs> what what are the different um different things a person makes of an experience like that i i, I haven't really been able to talk to them about it but i do know that the older girl who let's say three years ago when she was 14 uh there was a period of time when my son had to get medicine at a certain hour and the aides that were provided by Medicaid are not allowed to administer medicine and his wife was at work. Somebody has to work to mm-hmm. uh, allow this family to survive. Uh, so this 14 year old uh, child, really, she had to run home from school uh, to get there on time to make sure her dad got his medicine. Uh, 
That, you've got to, you've got to grow up, don't you? In yeah. ways that other kids are not, other kids around you are not expected to whatsoever. Right, right. I I wonder if you'd share, uh, you know, one of the one of the poems from the book, um, maybe the one called Prescience. I'll be honored. Let me open it. I have the page ready. Okay, I will read it and I'll explain in a moment why I wrote this uh, particular poem. Crescents. They glide in the rowboat down the East River, he and his two red-headed girls, the little heads turning this way and that to see Carl Schur's park. See, see the crepe myrtle flowers, he asks, pointing up, way up. And then, Though they can't spot them, they hear the yelps in the dog run above. Imagine all the puppies wagging their tails. Suddenly, the current begins to churn, runs swifter. The water is now darker, turbulent, as if a storm were coming, yet it's still sunny, the dark clouds invisible. He hangs on to the girls tightly as the boat twists and turns, rushes wildly forward flows into an abyss, wakes up from the harrowing dream, sweaty, frightened. Will you take care of the girls if something happens to me? She looks at him puzzled. It's just a dream. Go back to sleep. Now this is a dream that actually happened uh, a day or two before my son had the stroke and my mm -hmm. daughter-in-law told me about it. Um, she told me about this trip down a river where he had the girls and, and, and he was terrified something was going to happen. Now, it's my belief that the body gives you signals of something that's going internally that you may be unable to interpret. But I think, and even some physicians thought, that the leaking from his blood vessels began a day or two before the actual stroke. So mm -hmm. something may have already been going in in his brain that predisposed him to this dream. And it was really... That, that would make sense given the, the liquid images and you know, uh, what you're telling me about what an involved, concerned father he is, that that's the way his, his um, psyche might, might trans, translate that, I guess. Right, the brain the brain seems to try to make sense of of images and dreams that's what I've been reading about so it it kind of makes sense would you say that you were interested in how how brains work before his stroke or did that really begin your because you you sound to me to be quite quite interested in how it all works and i'm sure that went up in volume at the least but was that always kind of an interest of yours well uh it's funny you should ask that uh when i was in college i was a pre-med major i had always wanted to be a doctor and um i met my husband uh first year of college and he was pre-med also and we decided very early on uh, that we wanted to be married, but uh, we're both being, you know, children of immigrants. Uh, we knew we could not afford for the two of us to go to medical school. 
so uh, neither of us wanted to give the other to give up their dream. So mm. we made a pact that we would not go into medicine, but we would go into allied fields of science. So I went into biology, my husband went into chemistry. So yes, I've had an interest in all things mm. medical for many years. I like to read medical journals just for, for relaxation. What, what a, a beautiful bargain at that period in history. Yes. Uh, for him to be equally concerned that you not give up your dreams. No, my, uh, quite my, my, you know, I, I've been very lucky. Both my husband and my father were feminists. That is quite lucky. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but it, it also says to me, you know, our, our, um, the things that draw us find their way through, don't they? That yes. you didn't become a physician, but um, you did retain your interest and find yes. ways to, to go in that direction, in a sense. Yes. <laughs> my, my first job was at the Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Center. I was doing cancer research. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, maybe somewhat uh, similar. My wife's cancer made me intimately interested in cancer. So, <laughs> I, But I didn't have much of a scientific interest before that, unlike you. <laughs> well, I've learned uh, since that time a lot more about the brain. In fact, a few of my... Uh, poems really touch upon um, the features of the brain. And, and even the title of my poetry book, you know, uh, um, I, I, I'm afraid that some of my readers, when they first pick up the book and see erythrothalassidae colon brain disrupted, they might think that brain disrupted is the translation of erythrothalassidae. It is not. I came up with the title because erythrocytes, uh, the red blood cells, you know, I, I immediately made the connection between erythrocytes and, and the Red Sea. So to me, it sort of uh, coalesced into the image of the Red Sea. Erythrothalassa means mm. Red Sea in Greek. Oh, I want to come back and talk about that more, especially given um, your early experiences of, of, of um responding to the situation in the world at that time. I've, I feel there's some connection there we could make. So let's come back to that after the break. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Annette Libeskind Berkowitz, go to AnnetteBerkowitz.com, B-E-R-K-O-V-I-T-S.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. 
Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Annette Berkovitz about her son's stroke and her own grief following it. And uh, before the break, Annette, we, we were beginning to talk about the title of your book and its reference to the Red Sea. And I was saying it felt as if your earlier experiences in life would be very much connected to, to that title resonating for you. And I wonder if that feels true to you, and if so, how you think about it. Well, uh, I guess uh, there are a couple of connections that that sort of uh, speak to me. Uh, being uh, trained in biology, uh, you know, I always I thought erythrocyte is a red blood cell. Uh, it's filled with hemoglobin, which gives it the the, the red color. And, and in, in my readings, I came across um, the name of the, of the sea, Erythrothalassa, the Red Sea. And I thought, oh, Erythra, red. And the sea, it's what opened up in my son's brain. It was, it was a flood. It was, it was an epic flood. Mm. So uh, I, I made that connection. I really liked the title. I was very, I also liked the music of the words Erythrothalassa. And uh, I, I was keen to use it, although some people said, oh, no one will know what it means. No one will know how to pronounce it. But uh, I like it. But I did include in my book on the first page an explanation of uh, how I connected the name of this ancient sea to, to what happened in my son's brain. But also uh, the Red Sea is associated with the account of Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Uh, it's, it's a biblical passage that connotes an obstacle to gaining freedom. And, and in the case of my son, gaining survival, uh, albeit altered. But I, I thought that the two are especially fitting for this collection. Yes, uh, that's that's immediately what connected for me, because um, I, I, I'm not Jewish, but um, many Jewish friends and you know, um, I, I've always found that um, 
Passover story very, very encouraging or, you know, sort of, yes, we suffer. And then sometimes the seas part, you know, (laughs) Um, and so um, I can imagine that could keep you as you were diving into what truly was horrible and uh, I'm sure just changed your life so immeasurably to have that sort of image to keep you, you know, walking in a sense. Um, I don't know if you were consciously thinking about it, but I could imagine that being sort of a way to go forward instead of uh, just just suffer. Yes, it, it was. Sometimes we need images to hold in front of us to to, to get us through difficult spots. Uh, I, I should tell you about something that uh, my son tells me very frequently. Uh, I come in to see him and you say, I see them, I see them. Well, who do you see, I would ask him. And my grandparents, I, I said, what do, you, what do you mean, is it a dream? He said, no, no, I see them as if they were in the room. Hmm. And, and it, it's so, sort of, initially made me anxious and, and I'd say to him, well, are they saying anything? And he would say, yes, they're telling me to hang in there. He has the image of his grandparents who are Holocaust survivors who survived. And my father in particular had that incredible optimism, that belief in the human race. Uh, and it's, it's one of my books actually, it's the first book I ever wrote about my father's survival. Uh, but it's it's that urge to to experience life and in, in all of its manifestations, even if it's difficult, that's keeping uh, my son alive. So uh, the the power of images, and also the the legacy of resiliency. I mean. Um... We talk a lot about in my profession and in, in therapy about the the legacy of of anxiety and suffering and pain, but there's also in what you're describing a legacy of resiliency. You know, um, my ancestors went through these things and actually had lives. <laughs> you know, yes. Um, even so, I um, that's so moving to me. Well, you know, my uh, my father was one of the rare individuals who emerged from those dark days of the Holocaust with their spirit completely intact. As a matter of fact, my father became a painter uh, at the age of seventy-two. A very a very amazing painter. Uh, the listeners who would like to get on my website, there is a gallery that shows his paintings. And uh, when museum curators looked at his work, they thought uh, these were works of a young artist, somebody exuberant and young. And this was, uh, you know, a man in his 70s and later 80s painting. He painted until the age of 92, and his paintings are bursting with joy and energy. Mm. And and you would never guess uh, what this man went through. Uh, so yes, they, he he did pass that on to to both to all his grandchildren. It's it's uh, fascinating to me because one thing I say often about this period, which of course was not, it was only a personal Holocaust. My my wife's illness, it was nothing so uh, 
huge, you know, but it's huge to you, just huge to me. Right. But, um, and her and our loved ones, but I became so much more joyful in that time. And so I actually don't find those things contradictory <laughs> in some way um, in the sense that why bother being anxious? Just live. Uh, you know, I'm glad you're saying that, uh, Cheryl, because I was thinking we're doing the interview uh, the day before Thanksgiving, and I was imagining uh, uh, some of your listeners uh, in the kitchen getting their uh, stuffing ready or, or preparing their, I don't know, sweet potato casserole, thinking, my goodness, the people that I normally spend Thanksgiving with, uh, I can't be with them. It may, it may be lonely. Uh, what, what do I have to be thankful for? And, you know, if you ask me, what, what is one thing you want readers to take away from this book about such a tragic event that happened to my son? There is something important uh, that, that harks to Thanksgiving, which is there is always something to be thankful for. Mm -hmm. In my son's case, it's the small things small, tiny bits of progress. And for me, you know, I, I never uh, had some extraordinary joys uh, uh, going to take a shower or, you know, feeling the water run, run on your body or, or a steaming cup of coffee. These are things that you appreciate only when you lose them. Mm, so yes. small things in life, there is many of them to be thankful for. I feel it's a perfect moment for you to share the um, 1-800-PLEASE-HELP poem. Oh, um, be because you, you talk about small blessings in that poem. And I'd love for you to share that. Okay. Okay, the poem's title is 1-800-PLEASE-HELP. There weren't any virgins, not 72 not even one, but I clearly saw them, angelic telephone operators at an old-fashioned switchboard, sitting in neat rows, far enough from one another so their wings didn't tangle. Through the buzz and celestial interference, they strained to hear the earthly pleas, but maybe, maybe, I thought, they would hear mine. Just let him open his eyes. At first, I whispered shyly, didn't want to overwhelm them with my greed, didn't want to say plain and simple, I want him back whole, the way he was, seeing as they already granted him life. Then I got bolder, more urgent. I shouted and screamed, but they still refused to hear, just kept fussing with all those chords, keys, and jacks as if they really meant to be helpful. <laughs> Such now, a great end there. And, you know, I, I, I recall, I, I'll tell you over the 10 years um, living next to illness, um, I stopped asking for specific re results eventually. Uh, but in the beginning, there was kind of a prayer for small things, let her live a little while longer or you know um it got it, it wasn't it wasn't terribly grand 
in a sense. And so that resonated so much with me when you when you were asking, just let him open his eyes, you know? <laughs> right. But, you, you know, I was thinking about this uh, dream. I, I don't dream often, or rather, I, I don't remember what I dream because I think we all dream at least uh, a part of uh, our time. And um, this is a dream that I remembered, and I remembered it so viscerally uh, that I, I could feel the breeze from the sky. I could see the color of the sky. I could see those angel wings. And, and it haunted me that I remembered it. So I started researching it because I don't really have dreams that I remember. So I said, what does this mean? And I realized in my research that this kind of dream was something called an epic dream, mm. which is something that your unconscious trying to tell you something. And I, I started to puzzle it out. And, and it came to me that these telephone operators and trying to send a message that I was having difficulty communicating with someone. And, and I started to, to try and figure out who, who was I trying to give a message to that I couldn't. Uh, it could be any number of people, um, you know, it could have been his children and it could have been his wife. I don't know. But after a while, the dream stayed with me uh, as kind of an iconic image of a plea for help. And it was beautiful. And I stopped analyzing it because I thought if I, if I keep thinking about it, I'll just destroy the image. So, so, I stopped <laughs> so I stopped researching it. But Sometimes the image is enough. Uh, there's, uh, uh, I studied something called eidetic imagery. Well, all that is is an image that also has, as you just described, other senses. They're not just visual. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, we hear and we feel and we all of this. And uh, the person who was teaching me about that said that that was the earliest form of healing art. Oh. Just looking at an image that has that kind of resonance um, was thought way, way, way back to be a property of healing, which I find kind of beautiful that, you know, um, and I have found it to be so psychologically that when we, when we, um, when an image comes up like that, it does lead to a sense of healing and peace. Um, I'm so glad you told me that. I never <laughs> heard about that, Cheryl. That, that's really interesting. So, so you don't have to understand it for it to work, by the way. <laughs> you just have to okay. experience it, okay. not just see it, but experience it. So, yes, it's my uh, scientific training. I always want to research things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's quite a beautiful idea and reality, you know, because it has been studied by people um, uh, pretty extensively. So <laughs> now, I've, I've never had that come up during a show, but your relationship to your dream just brought it right out because <laughs> wow. it's exactly what your dream feels like to me. So we're getting near to another break, but I was curious to know uh, I get the impression you live not really far from your son and his family. And um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I interrupt your question. Oh no, no problem. Uh, I was curious to know how much his um, his stroke 
changed your what you were actually doing in your life um, because he must need a tremendous amount of care given what you're describing, physical care. Um, uh, you know, I just would imagine everything shifted around quite dramatically. Yes, you're right. Uh, when you have this kind of a medical disaster in the family, it affects the entire family in different ways. In terms of my own uh, ability to function and do things that I need to do and want to do, uh, I will explain it in one moment, but first I'll answer your question. You ask how far away he lives from me. Not, fortunately, not far, about 20 blocks, which in Manhattan, depending on traffic, could be 10 minutes or it could be 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's the distance. Um, Pre-pandemic, I, I could take the bus. By bus, it's about 25 minutes. Now, as, as it happens, sometimes uh, when it rains, it pours. And uh, my husband was sick at the very same time that uh, Jeremy had the stroke. Mm -hmm. My husband was uh, recovering. Uh, he was just a uh, couple of weeks past a knee replacement surgery, which unfortunately was infected and it took... Uh, many weeks uh, to realize that it wasn't healing and that the knee implant had to be removed. And at that point, it turned out that the infection, the organism that uh, took residence in his leg was one that's next to impossible to eradicate. So I had my husband at home uh, for six weeks on intravenous antibiotics, which I had to administer around the clock and run back and forth to uh, give my son medicine and assist with his care. So I was running back and forth between my two guys. And uh, when my husband was finally, he ended up in the same period of time that Jeremy was uh, hospitalized. My husband had four surgery, four major surgeries. Mm. Couldn't walk for for months. And uh, when he finally stood up to go to the hospital to see his son, whom he didn't see while he was laying there in a coma, which was pretty dramatic for him, he stood up from bed and he promptly collapsed and had a stroke. Uh. Uh, so uh, he was hospitalized in one hospital and my son in the other. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to rush through that. So let's take a break and come back and talk more about uh, the impact on you of having that kind of double calamity at the same time. Listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Annette Libeskin Berkowitz, go to AnnetteBerkowitz.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been speaking with Annette Berkowitz, the author of Erythra Thalassa, Brain Disrupted. And you were talking before the break, Annette, about this kind of um, convergence of calamity where your husband was first very, very ill and then also had a stroke at the same time. Uh, During the break, we were talking about... um, you know, the, the care, caregiver resiliency that you can't believe what you did, what you were able to, to do, that must have been just an intensity of emotion and, um, and physical demand as well. Yes, it was, it was, and, and it was, uh, really kind of an avalanche of guilt because when I was, uh, with my son, I felt guilty that my husband was home incapacitated. He couldn't walk when they removed his knee. He couldn't walk for many weeks. I think it was 11 weeks. So, you know, he couldn't get up and get himself, uh, you know, a glass of water. So I needed Mm -hmm. to be with him. So when I was with my son, I felt guilty about not being with my husband and vice versa. Uh, So, but I, I think I was so occupied with with the doing of of whatever needed to be done to assist each of them and the travel in between uh that i i i didn't have much time to to reflect on it and maybe Mm -hmm. the only reflecting that was done uh was when i was uh especially when my son was in the hospital and I sat in, in the hospital hallways waiting for the doctor or waiting to go into his room, uh, I, I would be writing because that's, that's the only way I could really respond emotionally. And, and it occurred to me uh, really only recently that 
sometimes people write these kinds of books uh, after a certain time has passed when they've had time to reflect on it. And Erythrothalassa is uh, different in the sense that it was written in the moment. The, the emotions were very raw and very fresh. And um, I, I hope readers can, can feel that. And I, and I hope that anyone who has had a disaster with a loved family member like you had, uh, or, or any parent who is a child who is suffering, uh, that, that the emotions that come through my pages, that they'll resonate, that they'll say, I, I, I felt like this. I understand what this woman was going through. Yes, and I, I will say for myself as a reader, absolutely. Even though the circumstances of our, um, you know, the people we loved, of, of what happened with their bodies, totally different. But um, it's sort of the specific is universal that many of the feelings you had, I, I remember having and can revisit mm -hmm. quite um, viscerally when I do something like read your book. <laughs> um, Thank you for saying that, Cheryl. Yeah, it's, it, you're welcome. And it's, it's very, um, I, I can, I was imagining that you wrote this book, you know, at the time because of that immediacy. I did. Uh, and I, I found that people either write books way after, uh, for instance, for me, I couldn't write when my wife first died. Mm -hmm. And I do write, but I couldn't. And other people must write, you know, it's very, we can't predict, can we? how no, how no. we're going to process no my the other the other two books that i've written i i wrote uh, years uh after after the events happened uh, this was very different for me and maybe speaks to the intensity of what was happening yes. i i don't want to i i don't want to um let you out of here without um referring to the fact or talking for a few minutes about the fact that your son has also um, had COVID, um, which for someone must have been so scary for someone who's um, very disabled. Um, you know, that, that being a condition that of course weakens our constitutions. Um, how is he doing, first of all? <laughs> and, oh my God. Cheryl, what can I tell you about this? It, it was, a, a, what a story. I mean, uh, having a, a son who is a quadriplegic, I happened to be in Florida last April when he became ill in New York. And as everybody knows, uh, New York uh, last April was the epicenter uh, of the pandemic. And uh, when, when I heard he was taken uh, to the hospital, and his wife wasn't even allowed to come into the ER to give his medical history. Now, his speech is very variable. Some days he speaks uh, poorly, and some days he speaks so quietly that you can't even understand what he's saying. And my first thought was, well, how are they gonna know his condition, the medications that he's on? How are they possibly gonna deal with him? And Terrifying. It, it was so terrifying. I had such palpitations. I had never had heart problems before, but I, I became so 
my, my res response was so physical and so immediate. And of course, you couldn't make phone calls. So the, the hospitals were so overwhelmed uh, that just to get information about how is he doing? Is he still alive? You couldn't get an answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely, uh, I, I was completely frantic. I would try to make phone calls like in the middle of the night, hoping that the nurses were uh, a, a shade less busy and maybe they could bring in an, a phone to his room. Uh, a couple of times I succeeded and uh, I, I saw him, but honestly, if I have to be honest, and I will be, I did not think he was going to make it out alive out of the hospital in April. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And miraculously, he did. And when his wife called me and said, Jeremy's coming home, we're waiting for the ambulance to bring him back. Uh, but he wants you to order his favorite uh, Mexican dinner. Oh my gosh! I was, I was totally <laughs> floored. <laughs> uh, so it's amazing. The doctors did an incredible job. The nurses, bless them. The nurses and doctors, uh, the amount of heart and and physical effort they uh, put to save these patients is is really a miracle. I, I think of all the things and all the people to be most thankful for tomorrow i'll be for not just my son's doctors and nurses but nurses and doctors are around the world uh and yeah he survived and we completed what well when he before he got sick he was probably already sick but he decided he wanted to write a song to honor his wife and daughters and he asked me to help him uh, with the lyrics because uh, his speech, as I said, is not always uh, great. And so he gave me words and I had to fill in what I thought was missing. So I collaborated with him on the lyrics on the song titled The Time I Spend With You. If your listeners would like to hear it, it's, it's on my website. I went and listened and it's it's very beautiful and kind of speaks to what we're talking about with with kind of getting present and being grateful for these little things. Right. Speaking of which, um, we only have about four minutes left and I'd love for you to share when a squeeze is not just a squeeze. Okay. Uh, because, you know, given where he came from and now he wrote a song, he recovered from COVID, which I find just a, a miraculous event, <laughs> you know, given um, what I, what I know about the kind of challenges um, he's, he's with you. Yes. Changed very much, but with you. So would you share that poem? I'll be happy to. When a squeeze is not just a squeeze, his girl's toys cluttered the living room floor, book bags, scooters, packed camp bags, lean against the wall, festooned with child drawings. The room is dark. Window shades blot out the sun, though a few rays sneak in. Photophobia. The room is stifling. He can't bear the air-conditioned air hitting his skin. Allodynia. Mom, the stroke scrambled my brain, I'm sorry. He whispers so low, I have to bring my ear to his cracked lips, but I'm happy. 15 months ago, a breathing tube clogged his throat. Wires protruded from his head. A Jesus with eyes fixed on me, 
in silent prayer, beseeching. Please let me play you the NPR news, I say, so you stay connected. I promise to lower the volume. Mom, my hearing is better than a bat's, he says, doesn't smile. I pull over the desk chair he can't use now, still insists we place his wheelchair in front of his computer. I sit by him, take his once strong hand, whose grip could crush walnuts at Rosh Hashanah, now contorted, useless. I feel a slight squeeze, fingers curling, not sure if it's meant for me or just another spasm. I found that very moving in terms of this time we're living in that the, all the ways that we used to touch one another, and I mean that more broadly than just skin to skin, um, ha have had to be re-envisioned in some sense. And you and he have kind of done that too. You can't, he can't hug you or, <laughs> but your connections feel so strong to me. Yes, and, and you know, for someone in his condition, he never says, why did this happen to me? Why me? You know, this is the kind of thing I would have expected him to say. He's never, ever once said it. And whenever I come into his room and I say, how are you today, son? He says, I am better. And I say, oh, better, great. He said, I'm better because you're here. And, oh, and, and oh. then he says, you know, then he says something that always makes me laugh. He, he lives on the Upper East Side, so he says, I'm the luckiest guy on the Upper East Side, except for Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, what music, what music to a mother's ear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. You're performing a wonderful thing for your audiences. Speaking oh, thank you for saying so. And yes. listeners, if you want to find more out about Annette, you can go to AnnetteBerkowitz.com. Next week, I'll have Barbara Abercrombie to talk about her book, The Language of Loss. It's a collection of, of poems and, and writings about grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit Voice